Hey, welcome back to the Aerospace Executive Podcast. I'm really happy to have uh, one of the, the leading industry experts with me, Kevin Michaels. Kevin is a principal, founding partner of Aerodynamic Advisory up in Michigan. And we sat on a panel together down at uh, Corporate Jet Investor a couple of weeks ago in Miami, and uh, he brought up some uh, fantastic points about aerospace supply chain. So, Kevin, good morning. How are you? Morning, Craig. Good to be with you again. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate you being here. So let's start this dialogue with something that nobody is in their world has even thought about in the supply chain, and it's Russian titanium. Mm-hmm. You, know, you and I know the vast majority of titanium for the aerospace industry comes out of Russia. Yes. Uh, where are we at? Yeah, this is an interesting one. So company in Russia called VSMPO Visma. It's a largest producer of titanium in the world. It's a vertically integrated company, meaning they not only produce mill product titanium that's used in aerospace all over the world, but um, if one goes upstream and you say, well, how do you create mill product titanium, you know, ingots, um, you really have two choices, uh, titanium sponge or scrap titanium, which is segregated and remelted and mixed in with the sponge. And so VSMPO Visma has both sides of this. So it's an enormous player. Uh, Pre-COVID, 45% of the world's titanium in aerospace, roughly speaking, came from VSMPO Visma. It's used, um, titanium, of course, is used throughout the engine. It's used in landing gear. Uh, it's used heavily in aerostructures, especially in twin aisles. You know, the 787 is famously a double-digit titanium airframe. Turns out that titanium is very compatible with carbon fiber. Um, so carbon fiber and titanium are really, you know, the underpinning of the A350 and 787 aerostructures. So what's happened? Well, I'll go back to 2014 when Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. Um, Boeing, a company that is not getting kudos for being prescient these days, did something very prescient. <laughs> Boeing concluded that it needed to de-risk its titanium supply and began very quietly a campaign to wean itself off of VSMPO Visma's titanium long before the invasion, the broader invasion of Ukraine. And so over a four-year period, Boeing did do that for its supply chain. They stockpiled titanium as well so Boeing was better prepared than any major OEM when Russian, Russia rolled into Ukraine, you know, uh, two years ago. Now, Boeing's supply chain, Boeing can do that for its own aerostructure supply chain. But what about Boeing suppliers? Do they wean themselves off of Russian titanium? No, <laughs> you're still using copious amounts of titanium for things like landing gear and, and, and so forth around the aircraft. But Craig, where it gets interesting is so now that we've had the shock of what's happened in Ukraine, what about everyone else? And it turns out that Airbus is heavily dependent on, on Russian titanium. Uh, a number of the engine OEMs, Rolls-Royce, Safran, are heavily dependent on Russian titanium. Pratt and GE, for the most part, avoided it, um, in part because they do military engines and other things, but they kind of avoided it. But what you do have is you know, a lot of landing gear companies, aerostructures companies, um, Airbus, the engine, o, the other, the European engine OEMs, all find themselves heavily dependent on Russian titanium still. 
And um, so they have announced that they plan to wean themselves off of it, but there hasn't been a lot of substantial action yet, as far as one can tell. There have been announcements in the U.S. of two uh, new mills, titanium mills coming online, one in Washington State, one in West Virginia, um, that will add capacity. But still today, we're in a position where if VSMPO shuts off shipments of titanium, uh, that the aerospace supply chain is incredibly vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And even though Boeing may have been prescient, it may be that supplier to Boeing that's still sourcing its titanium from Russia that would be caught. And so there's been some stockpiling here, you know, here and there. Um, companies trying to do their best. But the bottom line is here we are 18 months after the invasion of Ukraine. And we find ourselves still extremely dependent as an industry, even though Boeing kind of took a lead in doing things, you know, in its own way. How are they able? I mean, obviously, sanctions, Russian sanctions, trading in dollars. Yeah, how's all this? You know, half your supply chain is now is Russian, which is you know trying to trade it in dollars under sanctions. How's everybody getting around it, or are they? You know, there are. Um, it isn't illegal to buy Russian titanium in Europe. <laughs> I mean, the, so uh, it's not illegal uh, to do so uh, necessarily. You know, Boeing made a unilateral decision you know, to, uh, to not buy it and, and, um, and announce this, you know, they started this in 2014, but they made it very clear after the invasion that the, you know, you know, they would not buy anything, you know, from Russia, but it isn't the case elsewhere. And so, uh, it's quite legal. You know, they're one of the uh, distributors of VSMPO is a company called Tiris and they have a, they have a, you know, d- distribution arms in various places around the world. And I was just reading a story the other day where a bunch of residents in the UK, I think somewhere in the Midlands where there's a a distribution facility for VSMPO and the the local residents realized that this was a Russian company distributing Russian titanium. And they were a little bit taken aback, Uh, even though a lot of us industry insiders know that Tiris is, is a distributor for VSMPO. So there's, so it isn't illegal, but, but you you know if you can buy it if you can source it through an intermediary you know let's say uh, you have let's say a Chinese machine shop that's supplying you parts might be better if you have that Chinese machine shop buy the Russian titanium than for it to show up on your own ledger so it remains a big issue and it remains a vulnerability point and Craig the one other thing I would say is that if we were not in a period where twin aisle production was dramatically suppressed, mm-hmm. right? Because of everything that's happened. Um, what are we making, you know, three, seven, eight, sevens a month and, and like five, maybe six, eight, three fifties a month. Yeah. If we were in a period of where we were in the late 20 teens, uh, this would be devastating, absolutely devastating because titanium demand is suppressed. We're in a suppressed environment. We've lost a lot of the supply and that's caused great volatility. But my goodness, if we were producing at those high numbers, it wouldn't be possible uh, to do so. What about military aircraft? I mean, we're still, you know, we're still pumping out. And there's a trash load of titanium in the military side of that. There is. And, you know, I think for the most part on the certainly on the U.S. side, I think it's been I think U.S. Uh, 
ecosystem has sort of avoided Russian titanium. Uh, I'm not sure the same can be said of the European ecosystem and in the aircraft they're producing there. Interesting. And along the same lines, though, we have you, you mentioned high strength steel. Is, yeah, so is, is, is clogging up the supply chain too. What's up with high strength steel? Well, it turns out that, it, that this is a real surprise because we weren't talking about this a few years ago, but we are now. And it is um, steel has emerged as a real bottleneck. You know, um, if you want high strength steel, um, 15.5, 300M, other standard grades that are used in bearings, gears, shafts, applications requiring very high strength. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're dependent on this sort of steel. And it it, it, it turns out now that it, you, if you want it, you might be looking, you, you might be looking at a 2025 delivery, you know, if you order now 18 to 24 month lead times. And it is sort of, um, one of those linkages below the scenes that is causing the aero engine supply chain to have such difficulty and maybe some parts of the aftermarket as well um, is is high strength steel how can we possibly get to those types of numbers of 75 e320s a, a month by what 2025 and mid to high 50s of boeing uh you know without this so it yeah it's it's 18 to 24 months or more there have been some failures in that segment and some underperforming companies. And then labor is at a root cause as well. And it turns out that where a lot of these steel mills are, they're places where it's hard to recruit labor. You know, they are not uh, they are not in the garden zones of the supply chain. You know, Craig, I always joke around in the, in the world of raw materials. There's like a social hierarchy. You know, you go to a you go to like a, a carbon fiber prefrag place and mm -hmm. you go to the company cafeteria and, you, you know, you might have sushi there and, and everyone's wearing khakis and getting along well. And you go to titanium and it's it's a step below that. Maybe the food isn't as good. The furniture isn't as nice, but you get a decent meal. You go to a steel mill and uh, you'll have surplus world war ii uh furniture there <laughs> and, uh, and i can assure you there isn't a sushi chef anywhere within 50 miles so there is this uh i'm being tongue-in-cheek but there is a lot of truth in this and, yeah. and a lot of these places where the steel mills are it's just not where you're going to be able to recruit labor and especially younger labor to come and work and that's and then the certification barriers are enormous and you couple that with underperformance uh some financial failures i won't get into all who's who's doing what where but it's become a big bottleneck well you think about it, like you know look i've got a few decades behind me and I, I look at you know the times when i was a kid you know you know billy joel saying you know we're living here in allentown it's not because yeah. the steel it's not because the steel yeah. industry was a bastion of labor peace and love and you know it's it's tough. One of the toughest industries. Yeah, you know, China. Yeah, you know, Chinese steel yep. coming in. Japanese steel coming in. You know, a lot of it's it's like pilots. You know, you think about the stuff that happened 20, 30 years ago, or you're feeling the effects now. There were a lot of capacity cutbacks. Some as a result of the crisis, but some were just decisions that were made. And I think a lot of the steel, you know, mills are are loath to add capacity and are letting the prices rise and and lead times extend and um 
So it's so something we weren't planning on, something we wouldn't have been talking about 18 months ago, but it's it's kind of emerged. But you know, for for those bottlenecks, um, some of them have gotten somewhat better. You know, um, had we been speaking a year ago, we would have talked a lot about electronics, and it was especially affecting the defense side mm-hmm. of the business. And there was a fab, famously a fat, you know, shortage of fab capacity, and which is holding up the auto industry, and you know, hundreds of thousands of cars and Ford F one fifties parked because they can't get chips. And uh, in aerospace, you know, something like one and a half percent of the world's demand for chips is aerospace. So we're uh, we're definitely a third tier customer. <laughs> so we were having a hard time getting the attention of the the foundries. And uh, but now it, it sounds like that situation it isn't completely over, but it's 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 improving. It's getting better. Forgings and castings are another area that we spoke about, and they were issues before the COVID crisis and the MAC shutdown, and and they are still issues today. And you know, very famously, um, we have a duopoly in investment castings, really between Hauman Precision Cast Parts and a couple other very capable suppliers, a company called CPP and another called Doncasters, sure. that are knocking on the door and really trying to become to get into that upper tier of suppliers, but there remains just enormous problems, uh, capacity issues there. And Craig, it's it's been compounded by the fact that the configurations of the Leap and the gear turbofan have been changing as they've been dealing with uh, teething issues. Yep. So, and, and, and by the way, these investment casting facilities are also in locations where it's hard to recruit labor. So you're seeing more investment in automation and other technologies that, you know, that might help offset that and help to address the bottleneck. Yeah. No, I, yeah. And, and, and I know a lot of rocks get thrown at, you know, how could this happen? It's like, well, COVID came and then Russia came. You know, and, you know, now you look at, you know, you look, you have people, you know, Israel, major supplier of, you know, electronics. It's easy to throw rocks at the companies when you really don't understand, you know, what's happening below the surface. And you yeah. know, you're talking lead times, two years for high strength steel or you know, half your supply chain. You know, going back to you, you said, hey, you know, you know, you know, source titanium through a through a third party. You know, the, the reverse is happening is that you know the the feds are cracking down on the the aftermarket parts companies, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of you know. That that actuator getting sold to maybe China Southern Airlines or you know is is ending up in Russia. And how do you how do you prevent? You know they're doing the other they're they're sourcing their yeah. stuff through third parties too. So it's yeah, there's it's a lot of leakage con- out there. Yeah, on the whole, on the whole subject of Russian aircraft and how are they still operating? And it's 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 hard. Uh, it's a constant that. cat and mouse. It's a constant cat and mouse game that. Yeah, is it going to, I don't think it's going to ease up, but yeah, you know, we were talking, like I said, we were down in Miami and you talk about all the challenges, of the supply chain, you mm-hmm. put this and oh, by the way, you know, now all everybody, the ESG thing is coming in to play, especially mm-hmm. in Europe where, you know, suppliers have to talk about how much carbon they're pumping mm-hmm. into the atmosphere. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. We're seeing ESG, um, you know, the, the industry's focus, rightfully so, has been focused on what's called scope three emissions. And 
for those that don't get into this too much, um, scope one emissions are uh, what um, what are the emissions that that are created by my building a product? So if I'm building an engine or a pump or an aircraft, what are the emissions required to build that aircraft, including sourcing things in my supply chain and transporting things to my final assembly facility and all of that good stuff? Scope two emissions are, what are the emissions that come from the energy required for me to build this aircraft or engine? All right, so do I have green sources? And then scope three emissions are, what are the emissions that are generated by this product that I create? Meaning when I build this aircraft, what are the emissions it creates? And so our, as an industry, our focus has been on the scope three emissions, mm -hmm. right? It, as it should be, uh, because aircraft, you know, are out there a long time and, and they are carbon intensive machines, you know, in, in operation. But in Europe right now, you're, you know, growing number of, Public, the big publicly traded companies, but it's going down to smaller companies now are required to, to put out what's called a non-financial report, which is a report amongst other things of, you know, it's of, of ESG goals. And, mm -hmm. and so one must document sort of as best they can. What are the emissions created by my, my mm -hmm. enterprise of what I do? And it's interesting. I, you know, I delved into the Airbus, um, non-financial report one of the little nuggets i found in there was that 20 percent of airbus's emissions are just from transporting things to and from their factory you know airbus has this far-flung their, their supply chain approach is very um you know they have uh what uh final assembly facilities in five countries today Obviously, they're building here in North America and Mobile, Alabama, and in Montreal. But you take something like Mobile, Alabama, where you're making A320s and 220s, you know, the those the wings and the fuselage and all that, they're sent over in a ship from Europe. I mean, they're a lot of it's assembled in Europe, the raw materials sourced all over the world. You know, raw materials fly into if you take wings, for example, they fly into the British Midlands. The wings are assembled there. They're put uh, in the Dreamlifter and flown over to Hamburg, where they're assembled. You know, finals. They're assembled, and then they're put on a boat and sent to Mobile, Alabama. Yep. <laughs> you know, and pulled off the boat and then sent to the final assembly facility. And it just—I wrote a column on this recently, Craig, and it just seems like a pretty archaic approach to a supply chain to me. And you know, and kind of thinking it's time for Airbus to step up and, and create more of a modern North American supply chain. I mean, it is a perfect time to do so because they're capacity constrained in Europe. Energy costs are high in Europe. Airbus uh, needs to hedge its currency in a supply base wherever it can. And here you are in North America now, and you have a lot of suppliers in a world of hurt that uh, would kill to have the opportunity to support the A320, for example. And uh, in, in, in the broader sense for Airbus, uh, it will give the Airbus more access to the U.S. defense market in the long run. It gives them a chance to really spread beyond the political base that they built for themselves mm -hmm. in a much more substantial way. And it's not even a, a zero-sum game because 
you could, in essence, say to your European supply base, you know what, uh, we're at 55 a month right now. We're going to keep you there. You don't need to put the additional CapEx in to get to 75. We're going to do that in North America. And it could be that the Airbus suppliers come and set up facilities in North America. It could be that Airbus sources from North American suppliers or Airbus vertically integrates. I mean, it could be a combination of any of those. The point where I'm headed with this is that scope one emissions, which are now being measured in European primes and in some North American primes, will start to play a greater role in supply chain decisions. And, and, and I think for big, heavy aerostructures, big, major aerostructures components, you know, the days of flying these all over the world. I mean, I think that in time that will change. I think, you know, it's, you know, here's the challenge we have is, yeah, you know, look, Airbus can get a whole lot more efficient with its supply chain. You know, it's, look, it's a European conglomerate and they want to give everybody a little piece of the pie. Yeah, that's just the way the, the way the company was built. And now it's probably changed. But yeah, my, I, my, my, my criticism of the, the ESG thing is, is you got, it's, it's run by the no crowd. When I say the no crowd, it's 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 a little bit like lifting up the couch in your family room. You're just, you know, you really don't want to know what's underneath it. So just something's better to be left alone. And it's like, well, now we've got to report all this stuff. And what it is, it's just opening doors for the no crowd. Yeah. To talk about how we're going to make economics more difficult. You know, it's just going to be more difficult. And every time you try to do something better economically, the no crowd comes in. Does the pendulum swing the other way? I eventually think that people start to get sick of the, you know, that, you know, the, the, the And you're the, starting to see some of that now. And, and one thing I would say, though, is on the scope one, scope three emissions is maybe to put this in very, uh, you know, our industry, the focus should be on scope three emissions, not scope one, in my opinion. In other words, the ratio of emissions created by an aircraft over its life versus the emissions required to build an aircraft. I mean, that ratio, this this is the wrong number, but it's in the ballpark. It's probably mm-hmm. 50 to 1, scope 3 to scope 1. I mean, it's a, it's a big number, huge mm-hmm. number. In other mm-hmm. words, the issue isn't the emissions to create the aircraft. In cars, and I've read this recently, and so take this with a grain of salt, but with a Tesla, where does one break even on emissions? When you think about everything that goes into the battery and building the car and all that, the number I've heard is at 55,000 miles, is, is at the point where the scope three emissions that you've saved by operating an electric car offset the emissions required to create that car, right? right. And and then you're and then you're a net positive contributor. But but electric cars require a lot more emissions to create. So aircraft, it's a different deal. Like the the scope three emissions overwhelm uh, the emissions required to create the aircraft. Nonetheless. In Europe, they are doing non-financial reports, and it is something that they are looking at, and it is something that is informing their decisions. And, um, you know, we'll see what path that takes and to what extent that spreads across the pond to North America. There are a lot of chiefs, you know, a new position, chief sustainability officers Mm -hmm. in the big primes and tier ones. You'll see them. And part of their job is to get an ar- their arms around scope on emissions. It's, right? a big lean and, exercise. Uh, it's just a big lean exercise is all it's going to be. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, how do we, you know, 
how do we lean out the supply chain and, and make yeah. it? But it, it it's once again, it's one more thing that makes your head hurt when you think it about is. It. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's a very complex supply chain. Hey, switching gears a little bit. So your compadre, who I've got a ton of respect for, Richard Abalafia, put out mm-hmm. his monthly newsletter. He's pretty critical of Boeing. And you know, I think he's critical of the fact that, hey, look, they haven't designed a new airplane since 2004. Um, they've said that they're not going to come out and do one, another one, for another 10 years. Yeah. But how much of that is dependent on the, the fact that the engine OEMs are still getting healthy from COVID? I mean, you got you got you got Pratt Whitney, which is dealing with its own issues on the GTF. Rolls was crushed in COVID because you know flight hours were down, and a lot of its you know revenues generated per flight hour. And GE's breaking itself up, and you know it, it too had the same you know, similar problems to that Rolls had. So you yeah, know, the, the OEMs don't have any money to invest in new engines. That's that's a huge risk sharing joint venture. Is Boeing's decision right? In my opinion, no, it isn't right. It's uh, to to wait till t- to wait uh, to, to that long of a gap. It, it isn't right, and not to even outline much of a vision other than getting to ten billion dollars of free cash flow by mid twenty twenties, which presumably will be if we get there, it'll be the the moment probably where you see leadership change. You know, um, at Boeing, but um, there is. You know, Richard and I believe that uh, there is there is this opportunity that is is there and continues to be there for um, a white sheet aircraft. Now, we can talk about Boeing's balance sheet and instead and everything else. But the point uh, I think the point that one of the issues of contention is that the, the you know the CEO famously said you know we need you know twenty five percent type savings fuel you know improvement to launch a new aircraft and um and in fact a lot of the improvement in this industry comes in a much more incremental way mm-hmm. and in other words do we need uh the next generation of engines let's say an open rotor rise you know do we need that to launch a new aircraft and while that might be helpful i think our point is that no you you don't need to wait for that. You you can get a second generation GTF coupled with uh, lightweight airframe, coupled with the digital design tools and other uh, approaches that that get you uh, you know a twelve to fifteen percent fuel burn advantage and get the aircraft out to close this gaping hole in Boeing's portfolio, which we all know about. You know, it's the it's the anime um, gap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, it's interesting. Um, Delta Airlines just their maintenance costs are up thirty five percent this year over last year. One of the reasons they cited was the fact that they're having to do heavy checks on their seven five sevens and recapitalize your PW two thousands. You know, and I look at this and I'm like, you know, this would have been Boeing's launch customer for the NMA that they yeah. got it. Delta was dying for the NMA, and um, you know, and here we are now, and uh, they're going to be pouring money into a design from what 1981. Yeah, uh, seven five seven. It's an aircraft I love to fly in. By the way, I'm a big Delta flyer, but uh, but no, there is um, there there is an opportunity, and you know, Dr. Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch even went so far as to put out a a hypothetical kind of a conceptual aircraft, a high wing 
with an open rotor um, that he believes could be a very strong seller for Boeing and, and, and help to address this gap. Not only is this an issue, but just the broader macro issue is where do you, where do the skills come from to design a new aircraft? Do those just completely atrophy given the fact you haven't done it since 2004? So Boeing's in the business of building and developing aircraft. It's, you know, it's not an aftermarket company. Mm-hmm. This is what it does. Right. It puts Boeing in a real, real pickle. And even when they get around to doing this, whenever that happens, what are the what skills are you going to have to be able to even pull this off and execute it? Yeah, I mean, look, what what's the 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 max? You know, is a derivative of the seven thirty seven, which is now what about? Yeah, it's it's as old as I am, nineteen sixty eight entry into service. I, I got to think the the leap, one A one B engines. They probably have some margins in there that they can increase thrust. You know, they've got mm-hmm. some. Yeah, you you burn them a little hotter, burn them a little. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You could you, you and you could develop. Uh, you know, uh, the thrust requirements for something, let's say in the 180 to 250 seat range, you'd have to creep up the thrust a little bit. So maybe now you're taking the thrust up um, around uh, 40,000 pounds, but that's that's within the realm of possibilities. So you're saying the 30 to 40,000 pound range? Yeah, I think for some, you know, for, for something in this range uh, for, of the size range, you're probably, you know, you're you're looking at probably taking the thrust up into the forty, possibly higher range. You know, depending on how big the aircraft is. The concept that Ron is pushing is a, uh, it's a twin aisle, but it has six seats. It's two, two, two. So there are design trades there. But you know, at this point, this is really kind of it's as an abstract. Uh, discussion because you know Boeing has sort of made its bed and um and this really leads you know you're asking about Richard's uh monthly newsletter and one of the arguments that Richard makes is that Boeing's well-documented difficulties and the fact that they just sort of let go one of their most promising executives and eliminated the strategy role uh, the corporate strategy role at Boeing. What does the future hold for the company? Is the company preparing itself for breakup? You know, to to maximize shareholder value. Now, of course, GE right now has been in the process over many years of of really moving from a conglomerate to a PN. It will soon be a pure play. GE today is has the energy and uh, oil and gas part and the arrow, but that. The former is going to is a company called Vernova, and that will be fun, formally spun out um, next year. And GE will be GE Aerospace. That will be a pure play. But Boeing, you know, is it, it? I would argue is is Boeing a conglomerate? I don't know. They're focused on the same industry, aerospace. They have uh, space, defense aircraft, commercial aircraft, and then global services. And, you know, to me, Craig, on that argument, I think that um, space is potentially something that could be non-core. You know, that Boeing really hasn't had a good go of it. Um, there are parts of the services portfolio where they bought up, as you know, you know, distributors like Avial and mm-hmm. Jeppesen and others. I mean, are they core? I mean, they've been a nice financial ballast. They they generated Boeing Global Services generated free cash flow 
during the COVID crisis when other parts of Boeing were not. So it was welcome then, you know, but is there a genuine synergy with the rest of Boeing? You know, I think they've long since abandoned that $50 billion services goal that they rolled out, you know, a number of years ago. And then it comes down to commercial and military aircraft or, you know, and is there synergy there? And this is where I'd say, I think there is synergy there. If you go back to what we just discussed, the fact that the commercial side hasn't had a new white sheet since 2004, when Boeing does get around to doing that, where are you going to get the skills to do it? Mm-hmm. Who's launched? Who's been involved in new aircraft? Who's working with digital tools, digital twins? The Department of Defense and the Pentagon is well ahead of the commercial world in digital engineering requirements. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're requiring uh, the FLARA program, one of the uh, deliverables, which I think is coming due fairly soon, is going to be a delivery of a digital twin of that aircraft that will be flying in, that will be flying missions. They're going to be simulating logistics costs and sustainment costs. And other things. And that is one of the contractual deliverables by the Department of Defense. And the last time I checked, airline CEOs are not asking for digital deliverables <laughs> in advance. No doubt. So well, well defense, defense is galloping ahead on digital engineering right now. And I would argue that that is one of the dangers. If you were to break up Boeing Defense and Commercial, I mean, you know, it's hard enough to get engineers in these days, as we know. But if you let go that side of your engineering core uh, to a separate company now, and it's only about the engineers you have on the commercial side, oh my lord! You know what? What do you have now, especially as it relates to the ability to launch a new aircraft? Once again, and, it's like pilots. Yeah. You know, the decisions you make today, you know, the decisions made twenty years ago have created this you know, fiasco of a pilot shortage. And the same thing is you if you if you let the the engineering talent atrophy, you know, you're not going to find a young engineer in 20 years who knows how to put together an airplane. Here in Detroit, I'm in Ann Arbor, and um, this is the automotive engineering capital, mm-hmm. you know, of North America, Southeast Michigan. But um, you're seeing um, you're seeing a lot more of the engineering now move to places like Mexico um, and in other parts of the ecosystem. And I hear this from my friends, the industry insiders mm-hmm. that are working on this. And, you know, and I think some of this is just that we did, we're we not producing enough engineers in this country. So that's part of it. But part of it is economics where, you know, you can get an engineer in Mexico that can do a fine job at a fraction of the cost. And we've seen this in aerospace, in engineering, you know, India mm-hmm. famously on software and IT. Here's here's a fun little fact. I mean, you know, we're the greatest concentrations of aerospace engineers in the world today. And one of the top three cities is Bangalore, India. I don't have the exact current number, but I know that, you know, it was 25,000 engineers at least uh, about seven or eight years ago. Today, I bet it's, I bet it's 30 or 35,000. Enormous, but it's, it's, it's software. It's 100 engineers here, 1,000 there, 500 here. Boeing is dramatically expanding its presence, you know, in India. Uh, I think it has 4,000 in Bangalore right now. Honeywell has been there for a long time and has moved a lot of its engineering to India. GE has a lot going on in India. So, um, but it's, we're seeing 
you know, th yeah. this next phase of globalization and engineering play out as yeah. well. And you think about blunt Boeing defense, yeah, it's, and not, we're not making any more C-17s either. Those got the dogs not beat out of them in Afghanistan. You know, the Air Force is doing all they can to keep them flying. And eventually, you know, you think about the engineering that goes into an airliner can also go into, you know, new heavy lift. In the defense side, too, it's 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 not just that we have new programs, let's say like the B-21 or FLAR and yeah. so forth, but it's you have the steady stream of smaller programs. Many of them are black programs mm -hmm. that that give smaller companies and large companies the chance to hone their digital engineering chops. And especially, again, if it is a if it's a requirement of the customer that you have digital deliverables and you're willing to pay or help fund the development of those digital tools and processes, that makes a huge difference. And again, I think it's why if you're looking for best practices in digital engineering and digital twins and mm -hmm. industry 4.0, use whatever terms you want. I think one should probably be looking at some of the defense frames. Do you think Boeing gets broken up? I think Boeing gets reshaped, but not broken up. My colleague, Richard, uh, we don't agree on everything. He might make a stronger case that they're preparing to break up. But I, I think breaking up the commercial and defense side of the aircraft business in particular would be, um, I think it would be a mistake at this time for the reasons I've highlighted. But it's not to say that space or parts of that uh, global services portfolio, you know, um, are not worthy of revisiting, you know, what's the how core they are and, and, and where you go from here. I agree. I, I still I, I, I still anticipate opening up my Wall Street Journal, which I read every day and reading that Ackman or Elliott Management or Pershing, you know, one of those one of those activist investors has been assuming a large stake in Boeing. It's relatively a cheap company. Yeah. From a you know price to earnings ratio. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. you know, compar comparatively, it's a pretty cheap company. And I suspect one of these folks has been you know, accumulating shares and, and, and the hammer will drop. Uh maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I, I keep expecting that to happen. And the other um, interesting and, OEM that has been, you know, I think a lot of us have been watching is Rolls-Royce and, you know, amongst the engine OEMs. And and as you know, Rolls-Royce famously bet on twin aisles right, and got out of the, sold their share of the B-2500 and, and then had this Indianapolis arm, the old Allison, mm -hmm. right? It was kind of, I wouldn't say an afterthought, but, you know, compared to the sexy things Darby was doing, you know, the development of the the trend and everything else and the evolution of the trend over the last 25 years, mm -hmm. you know, you, you didn't think about Indianapolis very much. And so Rolls-Royce brings in a new CEO from outside the industry is on kind of death watch, you know, market cap falls to something like $6 billion at one point. And a lot of us were wondering, can Rolls-Royce make it mm -hmm. to the other side of this crisis? But it turns out that Indianapolis has had this great run where they won the B-52 re-engineering. Mm -hmm. They won the, they won the Flora propulsion. They, uh, so they have had a very nice run. And, um, you know, in Rolls-Royce meantime, it's just leaning everything out. They, Rolls-Royce had a final assembly facility in Singapore that, which was going to be its biggest 
final mm-hmm. assembly facility for Trent Engines. They shut that down during the COVID crisis. They shut down a production facility in Germany, and they've kind of retrenched on the final assembly side, you know, to uh, the UK and to, you know, to their two production facilities there, you know, one civil, one military. That's really where they've retrenched as well as what they make in, in Indianapolis today. Um, but it looks like they're they're in better shape now than they were a year ago, but there's still a lot of hard decisions to be made there. And, you know, for many years, a lot of people said, gosh, you know, could Rolls and Pratt ever merge on paper? It makes a hell of a lot of sense politically fraught with challenges, culturally fraught with challenges. You know, I think that's off the table right now, just giving everything that is going on at Pratt and RTX and all the rest, you know, there it's it's not in the not on the cards on that. But you know, Craig, in the long run, we were talking earlier about sustainability. And the engine OEMs are in this real pickle because we're in this world now where there are not only is the the core business kind of under a lot of threat uh, today because of supply chain difficulties and other things, you know, uh, the costs, whether it's the Trent 1000 issues or the leap issues or the your turbofan issues, which just dropped a $7 billion surprise in everyone. Right. Um, but then they need to keep, stay invested and stay in the game on sustainable aviation fuels on electric, on hybrid electric, on hydrogen combustion, on maybe hydrogen fuel cells. And it's not to say that they need to put uh, all their chips on every one of these bets, but they have a very high stakes game that's going on right now. And it's not too dissimilar from what the automotive OEMs went through when we first came out. Remember years ago, we weren't sure what the right architecture would be for cars, would it be all electric or would it, which was sort of Tesla's vision or would it be the Toyota vision where it'd be hybrid, right? Mm -hmm. And we found out that for cars, at the end of the day, the winner is all electric, but it's forced the automotive OEMs to share technology with each other because it doesn't make sense for every Mm -hmm. one of them to pursue all these technologies. And I think we're in that world right now with engines, you know, where if you think about Pratt GE rolls and then Safran, and Safran and GE have been very closely tied at the hip and almost acting like one company, yeah. an incredible joint venture, greatest partnership in aerospace history. You know, the, the CFM partnership between the two of them, maybe one of the greatest in industrial history, um, has worked really well. But how does one keep their bets on the table for all these other technologies at the same time that your core business is under threat? It's a lot to ask for. And that's why in the long run, I still really believe you're going to see more consolidation in the aero engine space. And if you broaden the discussion to include people like Honeywell, which have a small engine and APU business, you know, in this, you know, so you've got Honeywell, Safran, Rolls, GE, Pratt & Whitney, slash RTX. I think a decade from now, at least one of those four will be merged into someone else. Yeah, I agree with I agree with you. And that's the reason you don't fire your chief strategy officer. That's the reason you don't fire your <laughs> yeah. And you know, on that point too, Greg, maybe something worth mentioning. And we've done a lot of work, you know, uh, for some very interesting clients looking at, you know, the, the the pros and cons of these technologies and what's likely to develop when and 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 quite frankly, 
what's happening at different size category of aircraft because you, you can't talk about this in generalities you know but yeah it's very clear that you know, if you're looking at like nine seats and below possibly slightly bigger than electric you can have an electric aircraft you know that uh can be decent over the next 10 years something mm -hmm. like uh you know like an uh aviation let's say yeah. um but but you're very much limited in that size range Mm -hmm. and, and 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 to get above that you're probably looking at something that's hybrid but where most of the emissions take place in the jetliner world the only near to medium term solutions going to make a difference is SAF sustainable aviation fuels mm -hmm. um there are things we can do at the margins and air traffic control and routing aircraft more efficiently and you know electric tug and things like that but it's it's really going to be about SAF for the next 15 years and I think it's 97% of all emissions are produced by aircraft that are over 50 seats. Mm -hmm. So we can talk all day about electrifying small aircraft or, uh, you know, advanced air mobility being some kind of a green solution, which it's not. But right. um, but that's where the emissions are. And SAF is the ticket in our view. It's the lever that we have to yeah. pull over the next, certainly through 2040. I agree with you there. So, hey, look, we've been on for about an hour. Will you come back and do another one? Be delighted to do so, Craig. I could do. I could talk about this all day long. It's been a fantastic conversation. How do people? Uh, how do people get a hold of you? Uh, people can get a hold of me on the website uh, aerodynamicadvisory.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. You can find me there as well, Kevin Michaels, and I'm at Aerodynamic Advisory. And you're look all over Aviation Week. And yes. your articles in aviation, your editorials in Aviation Week are, are, are always fantastic and spot on. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. I hope you enjoyed the latest edition of the Aerospace Executive Podcast. You can reach out to me directly, Craig at NorthStarESG.com, or check us out at www.NorthStarESG.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or on YouTube just do a search for Aerospace Executive Podcast. Thanks again. I'm Craig Pippen.